Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. It's a wonderful, wonderful day, a wonderful Sunday for the church, Gaudete Sunday, in preparation for the Nativity of the Lord. Uh, we're going to spend the next, oh, 45 minutes or so uh, with your Bibles out. So get out your Bibles. Get out your Bibles. Um, and we're going to be looking through some texts because we cannot love what we do not know. We cannot love what we do not know. And I, and I, um, I, I believe uh, that many, many of us, even in this room, would be challenged to explain well the meaning and the depth of the meaning of Gaudete Sunday, why the church uh, sets this day aside specially in preparation for the Nativity of the Lord. We're going to dig into that, and I hope that you're going to learn a few things tonight uh, that will make a difference for you. Uh, and if you're sitting with your back to me, feel free to turn your chair around. Get comfortable. Um, and just to share with you some uh, text from the Scriptures, especially from the Old Testament that the church draws our attention to um, and, uh, and hopefully will help us understand more fully today as a day of preparation. So I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, I was in the middle of my sentence about what we're doing tonight while you're turning there to Philippians chapter 4. This is the text which the church uh, uh, uses primarily for the celebration of Gaudete Sunday. It is in the extraordinary form, uh, the old Latin Mass, some of you remember from your, from your childhood, some of you attend that today at some of the local parishes. This is the introit. For the Mass, the intro is taken from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. And you'll see that there. What does Gaudete mean, Catholics? Rejoice, Rejoice in the Lord always. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Why? Why do we rejoice? Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. God is coming to dwell among us. And St. Paul is telling the community of the Philippians, prepare your hearts. The Lord is coming near to you. Rejoice. And the church uses this text from Philippians to call each one of us to that great day of rejoicing because we can now see even unclearly a little now, but we can see, we can taste, we can touch almost, we can hear, we can hear the coming of the Lord in those wonderful hymns that we will be singing on Christmas morning. That wonderful day in which we will celebrate what St. Paul could only write about. That the Lord is coming soon and He will come soon in our midst. He will make Himself present among us very soon. In fact, he will make himself present among us in a short nine days. In a short nine days. Turn your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1. We're going to be a lot of Bible flipping, so kind of stretch your hands out because we've got a lot to cover here. 
Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail. In fact, a better translation of the Greek word here is rejoice. Rejoice, full of grace. And why is Mary to rejoice at this moment? Read the next line. The Lord is with you. There is one reason why true joy can be given to somebody. One reason and one reason only that authentic human joy can be given, that someone can be called to rejoice. And it is in response to that free gift, that gift which is so profound, there is no greater gift which anyone can give. And that gift is the gift of one's own life. No greater love hath any man than to give his life for his friend. Mary is the friend of God. And the angel Gabriel has come to announce that greatest gift of all, that her best friend, the Lord, is coming to be with her. Rejoice, Mary. Rejoice full of grace, for the Lord is with you. I want to look at a third text. And this third text is the Old Testament background that Luke is quoting from, the angel Gabriel is using, and St. Paul is using explicitly in his epistle to the Ephesians. And that text is found in the great prophet Zephaniah. Now, how are you going to find Zephaniah in your Bible? First of all, just flip back a little bit till you get to the Old Testament. You're going to see Maccabees. You're going to see Zechariah. You're going to see Zephaniah. I know there's a couple small ones in between there, but you'll find it. So if you go from Maccabees backwards, okay, you're going to find Zechariah and Zephaniah. I want you to turn to Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14 is the text which St. Paul quotes explicitly. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter Sion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why, Catholics? You already know the answer to this question. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cast out your enemies. The, the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. This is the text which St. Paul is quoting and applying now to the church. Applying to the church. It's the same Old Testament reference that the angel Gabriel is using to address the mother of God. But in this case, it is addressed to a person or an idea that may be a little foreign to us Catholics. It's a certainly an idea that you heard before, 
but who and what it is, who is being addressed in this text in the Old Testament, I believe would escape most of us. Sing aloud, Daughter Sion. Who is Daughter Sion? Who is Daughter Sion? Some of us said Mary. Others might say the church. We certainly apply that phrase. We've heard it, yes? You've heard that phrase used before in application to the church, but here it is being used and applied to daughter Sion of the Old Testament. So we need to understand who daughter Sion is. Why? Because we cannot fully understand what St. Paul is saying to the church, what he is calling the church, nor can we understand fully who Mary is being addressed in this way by the angel Gabriel until we establish the foundation for that because certainly the early church would have understood that she was being called that blessed title, Daughter Sion. First of all, where is Sion? What is Sion? What's that? Say it again. God's dwelling place. It certainly is God's dwelling place. It's a particular place. It's a particular place. It is the Mount of Jerusalem. In fact, it is one of the hills that surrounds Jerusalem. It is the highest hill of Jerusalem. It is the highest hill of Jerusalem, Sion. Who is daughter Sion? She is described in the Old Testament as the faithful one. She's described as the remnant. She's described as the chosen one of the Lord, whose heart is holy to the Lord. She is the one who is described as having God with her. God in her midst. And this opens up for us, I believe, the larger story of salvation history and the plan of God from the very beginning. You know in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, you can turn there or you can write it down in your notes, it's up to you, or you can just listen. But you know in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we find that God walks in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. God dwells among his people. In fact, even before that, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God makes man in his image and after his likeness. Man is to be the dwelling place of God. God not only wants to dwell in the midst of his people, he wants to dwell within his people. And this is absolutely fundamental to understanding the title Daughter Sion, which we will develop over the next few minutes together. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25, just to drive this point home a little bit. I want to show you guys a repetition of these beautiful texts in the Old Testament. Chapter, Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me an offering. From every man whose heart makes him willing, you shall receive the offering for me. So I want to stop there for a moment. God is telling the people 
to offer sacrifice to him, to make an offering to him. But he doesn't want just any kind of offering. What kind of offering does he want? What is the nature of this offering? What is the fundamental aspect which cannot be missing? Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me an offering from every man. Does it just say from every man? No. From every man whose heart makes him willing, you shall receive the offering for me. And this is a fundamental point when we're considering daughter Sion, when we're considering this idea of rejoicing in the church. It is not simply enough God does not ask His people to simply come and sacrifice and follow the laws of Leviticus. He asks them to do it with their heart. Their heart must be the fundamental offering. And from that, they can offer their hands, the things they own, all of the wonderful things God has given them back to Him. Turn to Leviticus. I'm sorry, no, no, stop there. Whoa, whoa. I got one other verse, and that's verse 8. When this offering is made, look at verse 8 in chapter 25 of Exodus. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. We see this repetition now again and again in the Old Testament. Turn to the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. Leviticus, chapter 26. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Chapter 26. Verse 11, and I will make my abode among you and my soul shall not abhor you and you and, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Isn't that beautiful? God's desire, and I think we make a big mistake oftentimes looking in the Old Testament, especially looking at the book of Leviticus. We see this law which is given by God as something exterior, as almost a dictatorship that the people must follow. They have to sacrifice this exact way, these particular animals on that particular day. And we forget the underlying message of the book of Leviticus, of the book of Exodus, of the book of Genesis, the underlying message of the entire Old Testament, and that is that God desires to live, to make His abode among His people, and ultimately, ultimately, to make His abode within His people. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 12 is probably one of the most beautiful invitations in the whole book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 10, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him. We heard that text before about the heart and the importance of the heart. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statues of the Lord which I command you this day for your good. Behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart 
in love upon your fathers and chose their descendants after them. You above all people, as at this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is, a God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The Lord has set His heart on you. To set one's heart on another is to love them. And to love somebody is to desire to share your life with them. To make what is the most precious thing to you. You cannot give anything greater than your life. When you give your life, there's nothing left to give. You've given your whole self. God has set His heart on His people in love. And what does He ask back from them? That they set their heart in love on Him. He has given His life to us and He asks us simply to return that back to Him. To give us, to give Him our life. This is the fundamental question that will drive the Old Testament story of salvation history. It'll divide the story of Cain and Abel. It'll divide the story of Shem and Ham. Hi, sweetie. Can you go find your parents, please? Thank you. Thank you. It'll divide the story of Shem and Ham. It will divide the story of all of those good and holy people in the Old Testament against all of the evildoers. And this is the fundamental problem, the fundamental challenge. Will the people of God set their heart in love on Him? Or will they simply obey the commandments without ever putting their heart into it? Will the law of God remain on stone exterior to Israel? Or will it be written on the hearts of the people? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Chapter 28. I think you know the answer to what will happen. And chapter 28 of Deuteronomy really prophesies what is going to take place. Chapter 28, verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness. Huh? We've heard that word rejoice. Because you did not serve your, the Lord your God with joyfulness and a gladness of heart by reason of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and in want of all things. And he will put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from, from afar, from the ends of the earth as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you do not understand. This is a prophecy of the coming Babylonian exile. But there is hope. In chapter 30, in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, verse 1, 
chapter 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you this day, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion upon you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. He will make himself present among you once again. But what is the fundamental necessary part? The fundamental prerequisite for God's dwelling in their midst is that they turn their heart to him. And this leads us to really the most, one of the most critical laws of the Torah. You know, the law of God in the Old Testament, as I said, was not a dictatorial law. I've spoken about, with you about this before. It was the law of God, which was the will of God for his people whom he had created. He knew what was good for them. He knew how to make them happy. He knew how to have joy rise up in their hearts. And there was one way and one way only to do that. It was for them to live out their image and likeness in which they had been made. For there can be no joy. There can be no fulfillment. There can be no true rejoicing apart from who God has made us to be, from what God has made us to be. He has made us to be in His image and likeness. And this law I'm about to show you, in fact, all of the laws were fundamentally catechetical. They were to teach the people how to properly live out their image and likeness in the image and likeness of the one who had made them in love and poured out his life into them. All of the laws of the Old Testament were meant to bring about that compunction of the heart, that offering of the heart, in which the people would return in love to their Creator and live out their life in image and likeness. And that law is found in Leviticus chapter 25. It is called the law of release because if there is any identification of who God is in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy, it is that God is the one that grants His people freedom because it is only within the context of freedom that people can truly love. There is no love where there is oppression. Love, true love, the gift of self, can only be done in the context of freedom. And that is why God took His people out of slavery in Egypt to give them freedom to do one thing, and that was to offer themselves back to the Creator. Take a look what did I say? Leviticus? Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. Again, the law of release or the law of the Sabbath or the law of Jubilee. We're going to read a good portion of this text and I want you to pay attention to it. It's fundamentally important to understanding Gaudete Sunday. 
The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Say to the people of Israel, When you come into the land which, you, which I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. The land shall rest. Six years shall you sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. What grows of itself in, in your vineyard, in your, sorry, in your harvest you shall not reap, and the grapes of your undressed vine you shall not gather. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land." The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired servants and for the sojourner who lives with you, for your cattle also and for the beasts that are in, the, in your land. All its yield shall be for food. And you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall be for you 49 years. Then you shall send abroad the loud trumpet, on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall send abroad the trumpet throughout the land, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty, freedom, release throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his family. What's, what's, what is the Lord saying? That over those years... If you have become indebted to another person, if you have become enslaved to him, you shall return to the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall receive it back freely. You shall no longer be in oppression so that you can worship the Lord and your heart can turn to him. Take a look at verse 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his next of kin shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him reckon the years since he sold it and pay back the overpayment to the man to whom he sold it and he shall return to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. He shall receive back. Why? Because God is the one who has taken Israel out of slavery. And Israel is made in his image and likeness. They are called to do what God and God alone does. And that is to declare freedom for the people of God, to build a context, an atmosphere in which the people of God can offer themselves, can give their whole heart to the Lord for that gracious gift of freedom that He has granted to them. This is the context. This is the context in which we begin to understand daughter Zion. Now what is the story? You know that after the people of God left Egypt, came to Mount Sinai, journeyed to the promised land and conquered Jericho, you know, those of you that have been studying your Bibles with the Institute of Catholic Culture, know that when they came into the land and conquered Jericho, not all was right. 
As I've said many times, it's easier to get the people out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the people. Certainly, certainly, during, at certain times in their history, they fulfilled the law by making the appointed sacrifices at the appointed time. But their heart was not holy to the Lord, as we hear in the book of Deuteronomy. You know the time of the judges, the time of the judges. In fact, you can turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 2, to get a sense of what's going on in the life of the people of God. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. I wrote down Joshua. When all of the generation of Joshua and those that had conquered the land with Joshua died. We pick up the, the story in verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work which he had done for Israel. Come down to verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the power of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed down to them. Their hearts were turned away from the Lord. And this is the fundamental problem that will drive the story toward the Babylonian exile. You know that the same problem continues in the life of the kings. Solomon built pagan temples all up and down the Mount of Olives. He bowed down to the false gods and worshipped them. Their hearts were turned away from the Lord. And when their hearts were turned away from the Lord, God could no longer dwell in their midst. He could not force himself upon them because it is only in the context of freedom that a relationship of love can be maintained. The law of God remained outside of them. In fact, things got so bad that in 2 Kings, if you're taking notes, you can just write this down. In chapter 22 and 23 of 2 Kings, we find out that they lost the law. They lost the scrolls of the law. They had forgotten about their relationship with God. And so we know what is going to happen. They will need to leave his house. I'm speaking in particular of the Babylonian exile. And we need to see the story of the Babylonian exile for what it truly was. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant. Jehoiakim was the king of Judah. Three years, and then he turned and rebelled against him. Come down to verse 10 with me. At that, verse, chapter 24, verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. 
himself and his mother and his servants and his princes and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon the king of Israel had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all of the princes and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest of the land. You remember that. None remained except the poorest of the land, those that had become indebted and enslaved to their brothers. Verse 17. And the king of Babylon made Matania, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, and the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege works to it. And they built siege works against it round about so that the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Now, Deacon Sabatino, why are you reading these stories? Because it is in this context that the daughter Zion is revealed to us. It's in the midst of this crisis. And when you think about the Babylonians marching on Jerusalem, I want you to imagine a very small walled city and the greatest empire the world had ever known bringing its entire force against it. Turn your Bibles to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of the men who was left in the land. You've got to go a little ways in your Bible to find Jeremiah. Jeremiah was within those walls. He was within those walls as the Babylonians were building siege works. He tells in his lamentations that it got so bad inside the cities that the mothers began cannibalizing their children. It was an absolute horror. Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah chapter 34. We're going to start with verse 8. The 34 verse 8. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to do what? to make a proclamation of liberty to them. The proclamation of liberty is the law of release, the jubilee year. In the midst of the Babylonians attacking, sieging the city, in the worst possible moment, the king stood up and released all of the servants and slaves. He declared a jubilee year. Why? Why? Because they had refused up to this point to follow the law of God. 
They had refused to give freedom to their brothers and sisters who were in bondage. And Zedekiah knew the reason why God was allowing the Babylonians to lay siege to Jerusalem. It was because the people had refused to live out their image and likeness of God who gives freedom. At that moment of crisis, King Zedekiah stood up and did the one thing that he believed could save them. The one thing that no one else would ever do. And he said to all the servants and slaves, lay down your arms, you're free to go. He proclaimed liberty to them, that everyone should set free as Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all of the princes and all of the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone who had set, his, his, set, set free his slave, male or female, so they would not be enslaved again. And they obeyed and they set them free. But afterwards they turned around and took back their male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves once again. This will be the straw which breaks the back of the people. They refused to declare liberty and to live out their image and likeness of God. If you want to put a marker there in your Bibles for Jeremiah, I want you to turn back very quickly with me to 2 Kings chapter 25 again. 2 Kings chapter 25. I want you to notice one thing about that text in Jeremiah, and that is the king's job and only the king's job to declare the Jubilee year. It is only the king's job to give freedom to the servants. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 8. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was, which was in the nineteenth year of the king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all of the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down and all of the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard. He broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. The very men and women that the people of God had refused to give freedom to, Nebuchadnezzar leaves in the land to become vine dressers, to become gardeners, gardeners like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Nebuchadnezzar becomes the hand of God when the people of God refuse to live out their image and likeness. There's a fundamental issue at stake and a distinction between these poorest of the land and those 
whom would, would be taken into exile. And that distinction is given to us. We've already looked at it multiple times in the Old Testament, but we can look at it very clearly in Psalm 51. So if you want to put a marker there in, in, in 2 Kings again, I want you to turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. You probably, some of you know this, this text well. Psalm 51, verse 15. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou hast no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give a burnt offering, thou wouldst not be pleased. Sacrifice to God is a contrite heart. Sorry, I tried to do it from memory. Thou hast no delight in sacrifice, where do I give burnt, burnt offerings, thou wouldst not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. The Lord left in the land those who had been oppressed, those who had had a broken spirit, those whose hearts were holy to the Lord. Remember that text in Deuteronomy. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes to the Lord which I command you this day. This small group of poor that were left in the land, climbed up on the only safe place in Jerusalem. They climbed up and camped on Mount Sion. They would be the remnant, the faithful remnant, who had God dwelling in their heart. They would come to be known as Daughter Sion. They were the image of the restoration of the people of God because they had God within them. Truly, we can say that daughter Sion has become the bride of God. The two have become one flesh. And it's in this context that we can begin to see what the prophets spoke of when they looked to the restoration of Jerusalem and the restoration of the people. This is absolutely fundamentally important because it is this crisis, the Babylonian exile, which will drive the vision of the people right up to the Jordan River to meet John the Baptist and to see the Lamb of God. It will be this crisis which will remain among the people, which must be Resolved, and they know the only way that it can possibly be resolved is if their hearts turn wholly to the Lord. Turn to the prophet Hosea. Hosea is not the easiest prophet to find, unless you're my kids who know the text by heart. Are they still here? There you go. Mariana knows where Hosea is. Go to Maccabees and work your way backwards. It's almost towards it. There it is right there, Hosea. Yeah. 
go to Maccabees and turn backwards and you're going to find it about, oh, I don't know, five or so books back. Okay? Hosea chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 16. As we're reading through now just two or three of these prophets that are going to give voice to the hope of the people, I need you... Ooh, I keep walking to that, mic, that speaker. Sorry about that. I, I need you to be looking toward the coming of the Messiah. Hosea 2.16. And in that day, whenever you read that in the prophets, it's the day of the coming of the Messiah, the day of the coming of the King, the restoration of the kingdom, the restoration of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 16. Listen to this. And in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from your from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned by name no more. And I will make for you a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war in the land. I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, the Lord will prepare the people to turn their hearts wholly to Him. Turn to Jeremiah. You've got to go back in your Bible just a little bit, but Jeremiah is super easy to find. You shouldn't have a hard time at all. 30, chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 31. Remember the importance not only of following the law, but of following the law with their whole heart. <coughs> Jeremiah 31, 31 looks to that day when God will restore His people. And what does He say? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, Though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God will cast out sin from his bride, from his daughter from his faithful remnant whose heart is holy to the Lord. She will be sinless. Turn to Zechariah. Just going forward, this is the last, I believe the last text we need to look at in the Old Testament. So if your hand's getting tired, we're almost done. Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter Sion. For lo, I come and I dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of you and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
and the Lord will inherit Jerusalem as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Look at chapter 2, I'm sorry, not chapter, let's see, chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 9. And on that day, on that day, the Lord will become king. And when the Lord becomes king among his people, he will do the one necessary thing to allow them to love him. The one necessary thing. Come back with me now to Isaiah chapter 40. And I want to walk through with you very quickly. Isaiah chapter 40. I want to walk through very quickly with you the text which you heard at Mass today. The reason why these texts were chosen. And I think now with this background you will understand. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. You heard these words today in church. You heard them through the mouth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist who was fulfilling the vision of Isaiah and the fulfillment of the restoration of the people. Chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. For the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Verse 9. Get you up on a high mountain, O Sion. Herald of good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good tidings, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. Again, Isaiah chapter 60 was for those that attended the Novus Ordo liturgy this morning, was quoted explicitly in the first reading. Isaiah 61, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Huh? The pro proclamation of liberty is the proclamation of the Jubilee year. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and to grant to those who mourn in Sion to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. On Mount Sion, a people will be restored. And what will they do? They will have gladness in their heart. Turn with me back to Zechariah now, that Old Testament prophecy, which was quoted by St. Paul today at church, quoted also by the angel Gabriel. Not Zechariah, Zephaniah. Again, 
for those that attended the extraordinary form this morning, this was the introit which you heard. But I want to come back a few verses for you because now you'll see a little more context. And I want you to think, I want you to think where you have heard these words before. We're going to look at chapter 3, verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones. Ah, the proud will be made low. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. For I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no wrong. They shall utter no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall pasture and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. That imagery from Zephaniah, what does that remind you of? That the exalted ones will be made low, and the lowly will be lifted up. Mary was not only quoting Hannah, she was also quoting Zephaniah. Sing aloud, O daughter Sion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cast out your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear evil no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Let, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God. God is in your midst. A warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew in his love. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on the day of festival. The Lord will exult over you because he has chosen you to dwell in your midst. And you, O daughter Zion, who have been remade in his image and likeness, will now do what the Lord does as he rejoices over you and pours out his life to you, O daughter Zion. You also will lift up your hands and exult and rejoice over him. Why? Because he dwells in your midst. And the angel came to Mary and said, Rejoice, full of grace. The Lord is with you. Mary is chosen by God because Mary is the fulfillment of daughter Sion. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to send her away quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. Jesus will dwell among His people because Jesus is God. Jesus will be their King. And Jesus, as their King, will do for the people the one necessary thing, which is a prerequisite for their restoration of their relationship with God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. The first act of our Lord's ministry after He had been baptized. The very first act as after He was anointed with the Holy Spirit in the Jordan River. The very first thing that Jesus the Christ did is given to us in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and a report concerning Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And He went to the synagogue as His custom was on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and there was given to Him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives to reco and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The first thing that Jesus, who is the King, did in His ministry on this earth, was to declare freedom. Because only in the context of freedom could the people of God once again give their hearts wholly to the Lord. Turn back now to Philippians chapter 4, where we started our evening together. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians comes right after Ephesians, so if you find that, you're going to be in business. And now, these words are no longer spoken to daughter Sion in the Old Testament. These words are no longer spoken to daughter Sion through the mouth of the angel Gabriel. These words are spoken to the new daughter Zion, the church. Rejoice, Gaudete, rejoice in the Lord always, daughter Sion. You who are the remnant of the people of God on this earth. You, the church of God, who has its heart wholly toward the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want to close with the gospel text which you heard today. In both, in this case, the Novus Ordo and the Extraordinary Form. It was taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him then, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the thong of his sandal, I am not worthy to untie. Then this took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Don Prosper Garage in his commentary on the liturgical year says this, there has stood one in the midst of you whom you know not, says St. John the Baptist, to them that were sent by the Jews, so that our Lord may be near. He may even have come, and yet by some be not known. This Lamb of God is the holy precursor's consolation. He considers it a singular privilege to be, the vo be but the voice which cries out to the men, to prepare the way of the Redeemer. In this, St. John is a type of the church, and, all, and of all such as seek Jesus. St. John is full of joy because the Savior has come, but the men around him are indifferent as though they neither expected nor wanted a Savior. This is the third week of Advent, and are all hearts excited by the great tidings told them by the church? that the Messiah is near at hand? They that love him not as their savior, do they fear him as their judge? Are their crooked ways being made straight? Are their hills being brought low? Are Christians seriously engaged in removing from their hearts the love of riches and the love of sensual pleasures? There is no time to lose, the Lord is nigh. Shake off your lethargy and render, them, render yourselves worthy of the visit of the divine infant. Such a visit that will bring you the greatest consolation here and give you confidence hereafter when our Lord will come to judge all mankind. Send thy grace, O Jesus, still more plentifully into our hearts. Compel us to go in and permit it not to be said of the children of the church, as St. John said of the synagogue, there standeth in the midst of you one whom you do not know. Mary, the daughter of Sion, the faithful one, prepared herself for nine months for the coming of the Lord in the flesh. She rejoiced with a joy that no one in this world can understand. For nine months she prepared herself. We have nine days beginning tomorrow. 
before the birth of the Lord. Nine days to prepare our hearts to make a highway for our God. To bring up the valleys and bring down the hills and prepare our hearts that God can dwell in our midst. And then, for those who prepare themselves, we will experience a joy which the world truly will never know. Thank you very much for your attention tonight. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.